Hi there. Welcome to the Department of Writing's Nonfiction Podcast. I'm David Leach, a professor in the department, and I'm the former managing editor of Explore Magazine and Monday Magazine. And I'm Deborah Campbell. I'm also a professor in the department, and I'm an author and journalist. Fantastic. Well, I think we were going to talk about pre-writing today, which is a really exciting topic. It's, it's hard to uh, teach, but uh, I think core to the whole writing process. But do you want to just tell me a little bit, uh, Deborah, your understanding of the whole overview of the writing process and where pre-writing sits in it? Well, I think the the first uh, time I really was able to understand writing as process was when I was an undergrad myself. Uh, and I went to a lecture by an anthropologist who had studied successful authors. By successful, she meant published authors. And she wasn't even dividing them into fiction or nonfiction, but she was just looking at their process. What she was looking at was how much time did they spend at different parts of the process. She, she identified three distinct stages. The first was pre-writing, which is what we're going to talk about today. The second was the first draft. And the third was revision. Often we get caught up in thinking about that draft because, of course, that's, you know, where we're putting our, our focus when we get started. Um, and we forget about um, how much time goes into the pre-writing. What was fascinating to me about how she broke this down was that she found that about a third of the overall time in writing a book was spent in this amorphous pre-writing stage. And so it's, it's really interesting because you can break down pre-writing into um, lots of different elements as well. And I, I think it would be interesting to ask you a little bit, David, about um, how you get started. So I'll, I'll just start by asking you uh, the key question that authors are often asked. How do you get your ideas? Uh, that's a great question. And I originally began actually as a fiction writer and even a bit of a poet where you might sit back and wait for the muse to arrive. But I don't think a nonfiction writer can get away with that. And as an editor, I remember like the really successful freelance writers uh, that I worked with were just idea machines. They'd be constantly generating uh, new ideas to see what would stick. And I think you've got to be just receptive to and curious curious about the world, but zeroing in on, on points of conflict, potentially, uh, interesting characters. I remember the, the first feature article I ever did, again, it was uh, for Monday Magazine, I had done some arts writing for the Martlet at UVic and other college newspapers, and I had done some short freelance articles, mostly reviews uh, and profiles, but things that were assigned to me. I hadn't really generated a strong idea. And I wanted to do something longer and I was just walking through uh, downtown Victoria past the old arena and saw this uh, sign up in lights advertising fight night in Victoria, a big boxing event. And I was just intrigued by it because it seemed so at odds with what I knew about the city and it's kind of cliche of retirees and gardens. Uh, so that just kind of sparked a curiosity and that led me to uh, inquire with the organizer and attend 
training uh, sessions and eventually go to this fight night and, and pitch it to a receptive editor who basically gave me carte blanche to begin this pre-writing all of this research and exploration before I had any idea what the story itself might be. Uh, I don't know if that's kind of typical, but I think uh, often even going out for a walk um, in the morning, I'll, I'll let my kind of mind wander. And that wandering mind, I think, is really important to kind of make connections between things that you're curious uh, about and, and what you think a reader might be interested in as well. How do, I mean, how does it work for you, Deborah? Well, I think you hit on something when you just talked about curiosity. Uh, I, I, I see the pre-writing stage as, as having that really hazy idea uh, and it usually starts from some kind of question. Uh, I become curious about something that I thought, thought I knew about, but some new information comes in. You mentioned thinking Victoria is a city of retirees and then seeing this this boxing match or this fight, fight uh, advertised and going, what? That doesn't fit. Um, that idea that doesn't fit is is one of those things. And also feeling like um, uh, something's missing from the stories often where I get started. So if I think about um, my two books, uh, but in both cases, it was because I felt like uh, the story that I was reading, say, in the newspaper about a place I would end up writing about, um, didn't fit with with a few other things that I knew. I knew there was something missing, but I wasn't sure what it looked like. So I was drawn to trying to find out. Sometimes uh, it's a feeling of um, uh, being intrigued. Uh, sometimes it's the feeling of I know there's something missing here and I know and I'm going to go find out what it is. So in none of these cases and the examples you, you, you were just mentioning, did we know what we were, were going to find? It was the beginning of a search. So in a sense, the process is a journey as well. So you're going out and then going to, you know, find out what exists. So once you get your ideas, David, once you once you have a say a hazy idea or a question or a curiosity, what next? What do you do next? Well, it, it depends again on the form of creative nonfiction I'm operating in. I've mostly worked in, in literary uh, journalism. So at that point, it's kind of reaching out and trying to kind of set up uh, interviews of going to a specific place, either to report on it or to uh, recreate it, uh, doing kind of the background research so I'm ready for the interviews. I think of my first book uh, as well, uh, where it was about the death of a young man um, kayaking at an adventure race, like a kind of off-road triathlon in New Brunswick on the bay, the legendary Bay of Fundy, a site of the world's highest uh, tides. It was the first death of an adventure racer in North America. And it was originally going to be a small news article in the outdoor magazine uh, where I was at. But the more kind of background research I, I did, uh, the more I realized there was more there. And, and a particular scene, often I start trying to recreate uh, scenes, uh, episodes, stuff that will give uh, the, the larger story 
um, more than just journalistic fact, but but a sense of kind of character driven by conflict, trying to overcome things. And the scene in that story that ended up being the lead was this lobster fisherman whose family had kind of worked these waters for, for generations, who had uh, come across after a storm, these two young men, one clinging to the kayak of another who had drifted off the race course and, and dragging them into his boat and rushing them to shore. I was just kind of struck by like, how did these three people come together? Uh, one was a young student from Singapore who had come to Canada uh, to study at college and seek adventure. One was a young uh, Acadian um, a son from a big family who, who loved the outdoors and the other was this middle-aged lobster fisherman who were suddenly all drawn together by this uh, catastrophe. So untangling that, but also kind of gaining access to, to the, the people who could give context to who these, these uh, characters were. So finding the characters often the next step and then uh, doing the interviews and reporting around that. How about yourself? Well, I, I, I think it's interesting you, you point out um, doing, uh, once you have a curiosity and you start looking into something, all of a sudden there's all these other pieces that you become curious about and, and start wanting to figure out how to divide up the aspects of the story that are there. You're looking for stakes. I could almost hear you describing your search for stakes. What's Ab at stake? Absolutely. I think that's so important. What defines creative nonfiction just from regular nonfiction reporting? Mm -hmm. um, now, for me, when I think about my first book, uh, my first book is called This Heated Place. And uh, the subtitle is Encounters in the Promised Land. And it's about the Israel-Palestine conflict. Because um, I really like to write about the easy stuff first. So why not? You know, <laughs> it's a, it's a great book. book. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I had uh, lived in Israel for about a year and a half as, a, as an undergraduate student. I'd studied at Tel Aviv University. And this was, you know, in the early 90s. And so uh, I, when I decided to write This Heated Place, it was, I knew I wanted to write a kind of, uh, a tr bit of travel, kind of a travel writing slash ethnography. By ethnography, I mean getting really close and deep into uh, the society and looking closely at how people live in a conflict situation rather than uh, trying to solve it, which no one has managed to do so far. Uh, I wanted to, explore and just show people what life looked like on the ground from many different perspectives and so I decided to I mean my first step was buying the ticket I mean going there and that's what, something you're talking about as well uh, going going to a place where you can find and have access you use the term access to the kind of characters that might illustrate a situation uh, so buying the ticket and then um, doing the two things. I, I think of two concepts when I think about pre-writing. One is people and one is paper. So people is uh, looking for your characters. Who is going to illustrate a situation for you? Um, can you have access to them? For me, I knew that a, a lot of people are talking to 
uh, top officials, military leaders, government. These are people who are pretty scripted. They're going to tell you what they tell everybody else. Their words are already in the newspaper every single day. They're not going to be themselves with you. And uh, their lives didn't really interest me that much. Um, but I wanted to find ordinary people in extraordinary situations. I had no clue who they would be. But I figured, well, you know, I'm fairly friendly. Um, people talk to me and I'm a good listener. Um, being a good listener is the first criteria for being a storyteller, in my opinion. Um, so I'm just going to go there and find them. And someone will talk to me, even if 12 people don't, the 13th one will talk to me. So um, that's, that's how I got started. And so um, I, I knew that one person leads to another person. So even if the first person I talk to doesn't end up maybe telling a story uh, that would work for the story I want to tell, they will lead me to someone else. Everyone knows everyone, you know, the six degrees of separation that we talk about sometimes that we're, we're there's, there's six degrees of separation between us and anyone in the world. Well, in a small place like Israel, there's like two degrees of separation. <laughs> and in most subcultures, like extreme sports, you talk to one person, they know 12 people, and that out of those 12, at least one knows someone that's going to lead you to a fantastic story. Um, so uh, just understanding that, um, you know, the first person you talk to may not be the core of the book that you want to write or the core of the feature article that you want to write, that's just fine. Um, so being a little bit comfortable with um, knowing that you're not going to hit the jackpot necessarily right away. Uh, so this is about people, people connecting you to other people, uh, people giving you information that shows you what uh, kind of character you might be looking for, because I didn't know who those people would be. But the other is paper. So um, I use the word paper loosely because we mostly read online, but doing a lot of reading around it. So I think about um, what, what else has already been written. So I know sort of, I don't want to write exactly what's, all, what's already been said. I want to move the conversation forward a little bit. Also understanding the context of the situation I might be writing about. And for that, I may be reading, of course, newspaper, magazine articles, stuff that's published on the web, but also looking at, say, journal articles. Journal articles are you know, dry, boring, nobody's going to read them. But if you read them as the writer, you may find really fascinating things. You may find experts you can talk to. Um, so looking, being the one who reads those boring journal articles and writes about them in a really interesting way separates you from, you know, the academic writers and also those who haven't bothered to look at the academic literature. So that's part of paper and also reading other books that have been written. I mean, but you can guarantee that if someone's written a book, they've probably spent several years on it and they have gone deeper than a quick news article, which someone may have written in, in just a few hours. Um, so I'm, I'm looking to see, you know, what are the, what are the big ideas? around the subject I'm looking at and also to get a sense of where I'm going, what I'm looking for, what are, I want to hone that original hazy question that I had, that curiosity. So when I, when I started off with this heated place, I remember I wrote down 12 different 
areas of curiosity that I had. And um, it wasn't an outline per se, and I, I'd love to talk to you about outlines, David, because I'm a terrible outliner. <laughs> I feel like the world is divided into outliners and non-outliners. There's two kinds of people in the world, and I'm a, I'm a really terrible outliner, but I do jot down questions. And I, so, I, I think they are my little thread that pull me through, and they're kind of like an outline. So I'll have a question, and, I'll, and I wrote down, say, 12 things, 12 uh, different aspects of the Israel-Palestine conflict that I might want to look into if I could find characters, if I could find the people uh, to represent them. And almost all of them made it into my book, actually, interestingly. So, David, let me ask you a little bit about this, um, your theories on outlining. I feel like that's a big part of pre-writing, especially for more, um, I would say, better organized writers like you instead of messy, uh, don't know where they're going writers oh, like oh, me. Oh, I am very, very messy and that's why I have to outline. But I want to quickly actually backtrack because I, I love this kind of idea of, of the, uh, how did you describe it, people and paper. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and particularly that, that level of kind of background research because I encountered it with my second book, which was also about Israel-Palestine, where I, I had lived in uh, for a year when, or eight months when I was 20. And, and I always tried to write about it. I wrote bad poetry about it. I wrote a decent short story about it. I wrote a truly terrible uh, play about it in, in uh, creative writing uh, 100. And then like 25 years later, I was just kind of uh, on, on Google, as you're wont to do, kind of surfing around and I, I typed in Kibbutz Shamir which was the place where I lived and what had kind of popped up was this image of these kibbutzniks these these residents of this communal farm where I lived uh, at the Nasdaq exchange they had just launched uh, the factory where I worked on the Nasdaq exchange and this uh, community of former kind of Marxists uh, had become the toast of Wall Street so there's that kind of question but then I thought okay well here is an opportunity I want to uh, write about it but I, I began doing that paper research, the background reading, and then I, I came across your book. And at that point, I nearly gave up on my book because I thought, oh, well, this is just so definitive and so well written <laughs> and kind of the book that I wanted uh, to write that uh, sort of an investigative travel memoir is, a, is how I ultimately described it. So that was important for me to read it. I didn't want to be too influenced because of it, because just kind of the gravity of, of, of the writing and the insight. Uh, OK, well, I'm going to kind of write around that. I'm going to kind of look at it through the lens of, of uh, the kibbutz, knowing that this other book already exists. And then I'll, I will kind of steal from its, its uh, style or point of view and, and its as well. So that was uh, really important. But um, people, uh, paper, and also place. I mean, places in the title of your book, and I think that is really important at the pre-writing stage to kind of mm. get out there and not just interview people on the phone or in the cafe, but actually in the kind of the places that matter. Um, because so much of literary journalism and creative nonfiction and, and memoir is really that uh, evocation of place and send, uh, setting through the senses. And you have to kind of be there with your senses alert to everything and taking notes. So for my first book, I actually kind of did the race course, kind of running and, and biking and kayaking. Uh, for the my Israel book, I went back kind of three different times until my wife finally said, that's enough research, that's enough pre-writing, let's go move on to the writing, uh, stay at home and do that. 
and I think that's really important uh, for, for my pre-writing as well. You mentioned the outlining and um, I am just kind of a messy, messy first draft writer. So I need to have some organizational principle in my uh, head. I love, I still love post-it notes to be able to kind of jot down post-it notes and ideas and sub-themes and be able to move them around. Sometimes I do that online, but uh, even uh, online to tools are a bit more constrictive and I'm really not 100% comfortable diving into a draft until I have some vague sense of shape. It often begins uh, knowing that I've got some kind of strong lead that'll launch me into the actual core of the uh, conflict, uh, but then some kind of pathway through it because I know if I begin uh, writing too early in the process, I'll just get lost, I'll get frustrated, uh, I'll lose all confidence in my skills uh, as a writer. Um, so I'll often kind of turn back and do more and more research and more and more uh, pre-writing. So the outlining uh, doesn't begin right at the beginning, but often as I'm doing that pre-writing and research and I'm, and, and I'm piecing together, hey, that could be a chapter or even if it's a short article, that could be a paragraph. Uh, or uh, a section. So thinking almost like a flowchart or these different units of meeting and how might they fit together. It rarely looks that way when the book is published or the article comes out, but there will be those pieces that, that get uh, moved around. But I think you, you do have an outline uh, in your mind if you are kind of using those uh, sets of questions and then trying to connect it to characters and, and those mini stories. I think that's essentially uh, what I'm doing but just in a more formal uh, way out of out of that desperation of just kind of drowning in all of the different directions uh, a good story can go mm -hmm. yeah and and I I, I want to talk to you more when we when we talk about structure get down into the nitty-gritty on this um, for myself, I'm more uh, less of an outliner and more of a jigsaw puzzle writer so usually somewhere in the pre-writing stage um, while I'm still doing that research, I'm talking to people, reading the paper, and going to the place, as you mentioned. I think that's a, such an important part of the, the research pre-writing phase, because place, going somewhere, talking to someone is free material. It's, um, it's like um, a movie happening that you're in, and it's happening in front of you, and you're part of it. And so it's, it's uh, just material dropped in your lap. That's why I always tell new writers, um, try to talk to someone in person, uh, because you're just gonna see their body language, you're going to um, see them in the situation where they, um, they do whatever it is that's interesting that you wanna write about. Um, and uh, I, I don't find it's quite the same, uh, Email interviews are sort of the least um, useful this way. Phone is a little bit better, at least you get a tone of voice, a sense of personality. Um, Zoom, maybe you can see them, but you know, you don't get the same. Uh, a, in Being in the situation with someone, if you can ever arrange it to go see them or have them come see you, this is definitely free material landing in your lap. So um, with that, I tend to start doing a little bit of drafting during my pre-writing. So I might go out and have uh, an interview with someone, talk to someone, or go somewhere with someone, which I always recommend if you can do it, rather than um, 
just going in, interviewing an athlete in a cafe, uh, going and uh, being with them, doing whatever it is they do, even if you're doing it really badly, will just give you so much more material. Yeah, uh, that so reminds I'm, me, I, uh, I literally did that doing a profile of uh, Simon Whitfield, the Olympian who was kind of training for, for uh, China. It was amazing competitor, but I'm not a very good runner, but went with like a training run uh, for the warm up in which I barely could keep up. And then they started running and just to watch him kind of accelerate. But then I also kind of sat in uh, on one of his training sessions in his like home gym where he was on like a, a treadmill and he had kind of posted these like inspirational kind of uh, kind of little blurbs and people who had said that he's over the hill. And again, to, to be in that kind of space and kind of watching him uh, at practice and that kind of intense physicality of it was so different than just he hearing people or him saying, well, yes, he's kind of a, a great athlete to, to kind of walk even a few uh, yards in his shoes. Absolutely. And to um, use your senses to see, hear, smell, uh, and, and also your psychological sense of noting, um, noting the notes that he posted to himself. Um, those kind of experiences are so different from uh, meeting someone at a cafe and, you know, all the only information you can get out of it is that, well, he likes drinking espresso. Uh, well, it, much better to see him, you know, in a training session um, and, you know, uh, it's just it's just material handed handed to you. Uh, so at that point, for, for what I would do is uh, take a lot of notes. So I'm taking notes on those kinds of little, anything that strikes me, anything that I find interesting, strange, funny, and uh, little, I even take notes on like little uh, moments that are going on in the background. If I'm at someone's home, I might take notes of what pictures are on the wall, what books are on the bookshelf. Um, and uh, uh, any, of course, if, if they say anything funny or anything funny happens, I always feel like humor is such a gift to a reader. We don't get to laugh enough. So it's like um, they did my writing for me if they said something funny. Or it, So I'm always taking note of those kinds of things. And I never know what I'm going to use. So I take way more notes than I could ever use because I also have a theory that 90% of what we writers gather will go on the cutting room floor, but they inform that 10% that ends up on the page and they give it weight and, uh, and you just never know what you're going to use. Right. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, over, I'm over, I'm over note taking. And then maybe I'm, maybe I'm drafting a little scene at the same time. Uh, if something comes to me, you know, I'm not getting invested in, oh, oh, I'm in my first draft. It's got to be good. No, I'm just, my, my notebooks are a mess. Nobody can read them except for me. Um, and that's just fine to have those just putting it down on paper just so that you, uh, sometimes I'll do it on my laptop, type really quickly a really murky scene and never know I may end up using it exactly as it's written. So maybe a last question here and you sort of touched on it when does pre-writing actually end for you? Are you constantly doing it or is there kind of a slow uh, shift from pre-writing or are you like that kind of PhD student who's just kind of constantly going back uh, to do more and more uh, research until you're buried in it? And certainly that's what, what I feel like sometime at least on a, a book 
a project that I can bury myself in pre-writing until somebody gives me a little push or an editor says, hey, you've got uh, a deadline, but are, are you kind of motivated or kind of recognize a moment uh, in your pre-writing that says, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go to kind of shift into that next stage and commit to it more fully? Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, there is such a thing as over-researching. Um, it can be useful to just um, fill in those holes later. Often you do need to go back and do a little more research, very often. Um, but there's a, usually a point where I feel like my questions have been answered to in a fulfilling way, not in a, oh, now that because that question's answered now, I have 12 more questions, then I keep going. But, uh, or I realized my first question, my original hazy idea was not a very good question. It was a very, but it was, it was the beginning. It was following that, I had to follow that thread. But once I start feeling, I think a little bit bored, it's the same way when I'm doing an interview with someone, when I start to feel, okay, now we're just kind of hashing over things I already mostly know. Uh, or I start to feel a little bored with uh, my material, like I know it all, uh, then I feel ready to write. One of the things I find really useful too is when I come back from a place or talking to a person or reading the paper, those people, people paper place uh, aspects of, of pre-writing, I will often talk it over with a friend. I will say, oh, here's what I found out. And here's something, here's what was really interesting, because I sometimes find that when I'm writing stuff down, I will include a lot of the boring stuff. And when I'm talking to a friend, I immediately want to be interesting and I go straight to what's interesting. So that can be a really interesting way of, um, in, a, in a sense, structuring early structure of your ideas. And then I try to write really fast and we'll talk about the first draft next. Um, but um, yeah, I, 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 I don't think you need to have all your ducks in a row to start writing, but you should have more than a, one or two ducks. Fantastic. Well, that's probably a good place to stop uh, just before we get into the actual writing, because uh, that is the element that I fear and hate the most. I'm, I'm the, <laughs> the writer who hates actual writing, who loves pre-writing and, and, and loves revision. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll dive into the why and, and how to get uh, really through that actual first draft process, which I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about, Brian, because I think I still have a lot to learn in that area. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Uh, I, I think you need to be patient with your process. It is a process and it's okay to get uh, lost. It's okay to get disillusioned with your early idea because that's the place where your ideas can be um, be formed and come you'll you know bad ideas often lead to good ideas too so just just getting started and uh being willing to accept that this is about a third of the process maybe for some people it's even longer and that's okay 
Yeah, and I think getting excited as well. I mean, I think it's it's such a kind of honor and responsibility, particularly to be a nonfiction uh, writer and these opportunities just to go out there and, and get people to talk about uh, their lives and, and tell you interesting uh, stories. So, yeah, I, I always enjoy that. Uh, that part of it. Uh, mm, it's I a just gift. To, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Deborah. It's an absolute kind of pleasure to, uh, to hear you talk about your work. And I look forward to sitting down again, virtually, of course, and talking about stage two of the nonfiction writing process. It's a pleasure.